This morning, we start a new series in the book of Hebrews. It's an exciting book. It's an exciting series. I'm looking for, I've been looking forward to this for over a year, actually. I began uh, hearing several messages in the podcast I listened to over our last year, and uh, several happened to be in the book of Hebrews. And I was like, I need to share this information. I need to study up on this. I need to share this with my church. And then every time I get ready to do it, God said, well, just hold off. Just hold off. Hold off. I'm like, but really, God, this is exciting stuff. I know, but hold off. Time's not there yet. Hold off. And then as we got close to finishing up the series in Hope of last week, the last few weeks, God says, now. I'm like, so all right. Now I'm going to get to study. We're going to go through and study the book of Hebrews with everybody. We get to study this because there's some great information in here. And one thing you need to know, a couple things you need to know about the book of Hebrews before we get into the, the guts and the meat of it, is that we don't know who the author is. We have no clue who the author of Hebrews is. We know that Mark was written by Mark, right? Matthew was written by Matthew. John was written by John. Luke was written by Luke. You guys are smart. We know that Paul wrote a bunch of the others Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, all the ones that wrote to the churches are written by, mostly by Paul. James written by James. Revelation was written by John. We know all these things, right? But Hebrews has always kind of been this mystery. Even one of the early church fathers, Origen, in the third century, wrote, says, we don't know who the author of Hebrews was. But what they do know is it was accepted as authoritative from the very beginning when it began being distributed among the early church. People, as they read this, they're like, this needs to go into the canon of Scripture. This needs to be added to that, the, the meat of God's Word that we're putting together, we're compiling, as well. Eventually, we know now, today is the New Testament, the Bible. It was accepted as God's Word from the very, very beginning. It was written probably sometime between 40 and 60 A.D. Um, about the time the church was beginning to undergo persecution, we know it wasn't written any time later than 70 because that's when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And so there's no mention of that. But there's some great information here to the disciples, to the believers, to keep them from going back to the sacrificial system that they've been a part of as, Jew, as Jews. It was written to those who had a great understanding of the Old Testament, of the stories of the Old Testament. Of, of the creation account, of the flood account, of the prophets, and of all the things that were going on in the Old Testament. So the writer of Hebrews doesn't go into a lot of detail. He assumes that they already have an understanding of those things. So when he talks about the flood, when he talks about creation, when he talks about the prophets and all these things, he assumes that the, the, writer, the readers rather have an understanding of that. So we as Christians now in the 21st century We'll be digging through that. We'll be going through, we'll be explaining some of that to everyone as we go through, because we don't have an automatic understanding a lot of times of the Old Testament. We know the basic stories. We know some of the basic concepts. But as we dig into the meat of the book of Hebrews, we're going to see how everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything that the writer of Hebrews is talking about his goal is to point people to Jesus because Jesus is greater. Jesus is the greatest thing. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. In fact, this first chapter we're going to look at today, his whole point is Jesus is greater. 
Jesus is more awesome. We praise the name of the Lord our God. That last song we just sang was all about lifting up the name of Jesus and saying, you are greater than all that is going on around us. You're greater than the virus. You're greater than my difficulties. You're greater than my traditions. You're greater than all that is going on around me. Jesus, you are greater. And so when we begin to really understand, why, why is that important? Because as we begin to understand how great Jesus is, how awesome he is, and all that he's done for us, it puts this in perspective, all that's going on in our world today. It puts in perspective all the struggles, all the difficulties that we, we may be experiencing. It puts in perspective our sinfulness as it relates to Jesus' greatness, his righteousness. It puts in perspective my little puny self and how great sometimes we think we are and how great we think we're doing compared to how awesome and magnificent Jesus is. So let's take a look here this morning at Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start reading the first four verses here. Open up your Bibles if you would. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 as we kind of go through this a little bit this morning. The writer writes, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you hear the words of the writer there this morning? Do you hear the words that he's speaking? In the past, through many ways, and in many instances, God spoke to the world. God spoke to the, the Old Testament saints. God spoke to his people through the prophets. He spoke to the people through miracles, through signs, the burning bush, the, the flood, through all these, the manna falling from heaven. And God provided for his people in the temple as they made sacrifices, blood flowing over, blood flowing over for years and years and years, for thousands of years. God spoke to his people through the priests. But now, in these last days, God speaks to us through his son. He literally says in the Greek, he says, by son. He speaks by his son, the word. Then he even calls him that. He says he's the word. Many times and in many ways. How does God speak to you today? If in the Old Testament, and in days gone past, God spoke through the prophets. How does God speak to us today? There's a TV show that came out a while back. And I've never, I've not seen it, but I know the basic premise, and it's called God Friended Me. Some of you may have seen it. This guy on social media all of a sudden gets friended by God on his Facebook account. 
And God's speaking to him and directing him to go different places and do things. And this guy's an atheist. And God is then speaking to him through his social media account. Okay. <laughs> God speaks to us in many ways today, even. But they all relate back to his son. Maybe God speaks to us through loss of health, or loss of livelihood, or jobs. Loss, maybe closed and open doors. We're always praying, God, what is your will? What is your will? What is your will? Maybe should I take this job? No, the door, door is closed shut. Should I, take, should I move over here? No, it's closed shut. Should I go over here? No, it's wide open. And we say that, take that as a sign from God that he wants us to move in that direction. God speaks to us today directly through Jesus, through his words. How does the author refer to Jesus? Look in verse 3. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Last year, I think it was last year, we had the solar eclipse. And a bunch of us were outside with our little makeshift microtelescopes, not microscopes, telescopes, trying to see the sun, right? But you can't look directly at the sun. Because if you look directly at the solar eclipse, you can go blind because the radiance even of that sun, looking up at it, even though it's blocked by the moon, the halo around it is bright enough to blind or to hurt your eyes. None, we would never tell our kids, go outside and look at the sun for 30 minutes. If you're a good parent. <laughs> we would never do that. We'd never say, go look at that 5,000 lumens flashlight. Look right in that light. And I stand up here sometimes and the, and the radiance off of these lights that are on the stage are sometimes blinding. And all I see are spots on all your faces. Especially if I make the mistake like I did a second ago, looking up at them. Y'all are looking very beautiful today. <laughs> oh, I see her. Reflections of the whites. But imagine our sun, 93 million miles away. Those atoms bombarding off of each other, creating this glow, this halo that creates these solar flares, heats our world. Any closer, and we burn up. Any further away, and we freeze. God placed our world in the exact place so that we could survive, so our society, our culture could, could survive, so the plants and trees and crops could grow so we could survive. 93 million miles away. They say it takes eight minutes for the light and the heat from the sun to reach us. If the sun went poof right now, we'd be okay for eight minutes. And then it'd be a little chilly. <laughs> a lot chilly. But the radiance of God is even brighter than that. The radiance of God is so much more. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were afraid that if they ever saw God, if they ever met God face to face, they knew they would just die. Because his radiance is so wonderful and glorious that they would just burn him up. When Moses came out from the tabernacle meeting with God face to face, and he's in there at the, at the Ark of the Covenant praying, interceding on over Israel, he came out. The glow, the Shekinah glow, the Shekinah glory was all around him. And the people, 
they turned, they turned away and they ran in fear because of the glow that was on Moses. And that was just the glow, the leftover. That was just the, the residue from meeting with God. You ever met somebody who you, you walk up to them and you're like, there's just something going on, something about you. There seems to be this glow after they've spent time with God. Sometimes you may see a physical glow around them. Sometimes you just may be this spark of this joy, this light that seems to come from within, the glory of God. But here, the author says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of God. He is the very radiance of God. He is that glow. He is that Shekinah glory. He is not just mirroring it or mimicking it. He is the radiance of God. Next, he refers to him, he says, and he is the exact imprint of God. The exact imprint. The old in, in, in olden days, they used to, and, and even now sometimes in some Asian countries, they used to use a ring. And if you wanted to seal a letter, you would take that ring and you would press it into some hot wax and you press it in there so that the imprint of that ring would get into that wax, sealing that letter. So if that wax is broken, one, you'd know that somebody got into it, but also that imprint, that seal, lets you know exactly who that letter was from. There was no doubt. It's from the emperor. It's from the mayor. It's from your brother-in-law. I'll throw that one out. It's from whoever. But that seal, that ring, lets you know exactly who that letter was from. So Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Not just a copy. You ever run stuff through a copy machine? You come out, it looks close, but it's not the exact imprint, right? You ever put your face on there? I know you've done it. Nobody wants to admit it. I've done it. Put your face on the copy machine. Push go. You're making faces and you get all these different copies. Nobody else has done that? All right. I won't admit to it either. I'm sorry, Steph. You have to go clean off your copy machine later. When you do that, you're getting a resemblance of what the original was, but not the original. You don't, it always, the copy never looks quite right, right? It always looks a little bit distorted. It, it looks good, but you can often tell, you can see the blemishes in the copy. Even when you, when I print out my notes for Sunday mornings, it doesn't look as good as it does on my computer screen. The color isn't as bright, it's not as vibrant. Sometimes there's some mistakes on the page that the printer prints off. May make a mold of something. It's never, even 3D printers, it's never quite exact. Looks good. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. That means his invisible nature and his divine attributes that Paul writes about in Romans, exactly, Jesus exactly mimicked God. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
had been clearly perceived. So when people met Jesus, they weren't meeting somebody like God. They weren't meeting one of his prophets who spoke for God. They were meeting God himself. They were meeting the person of God in the flesh. See, the prophets were nice. They spoke for God. Priests were nice. They spoke for God. Pastors all around the country are good. We speak for no, we speak God's words. I'm going to say we speak for God. We speak God's words to the people. Jesus is even better. He spoke the words of God from his mouth to our ears and to our pages. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God. And literally, he's the full representation of God, sustaining all things by the power of his word. When you see him, you see God. When we eventually we die and we go to heaven and we see Jesus, it's there gonna be no difference between Jesus and God. You see one, you see the other. We pray to one, we pray to both. It is God in the flesh. The th three are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The three are one. God. Think of the Trinity this way. I heard it this, heard it this week. When you think of God in, the, in his three parts, when I get ready to speak, the words are formed in my brain. They're formed on my lips and begin to come out of my mouth. But until my vocal cords kick in and make the sound waves, that's when you hear the words. So when you talk about the words from your pastor or somebody speaking, those are the three parts that are engaged there. I can think all day long. I can, I can form the words on my lips. But until my vocal cords are engaged, that's the three parts of God. All three make up the word. All three make up who God is. They all have three distinct jobs. They have three distinct functions, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they all three make up who God is. Just like the words I speak are made up of three different functions within my body. Jesus is fully God, not a kind of God, not a lower level God, not even just a mouthpiece for God. He is fully 100% God. When we ask ourselves and we're looking for answers, we ask ourselves, what does God have to say about the situation I'm going through right now? We must look at the question with Jesus at the forefront of the answer. God, how would you have me do this? God, how do you want me to go through this situation? How do you want me to live my life? How do you want me to treat my neighbors? How do you want me to respond to that mean person on social media? How do you want me to speak words of truth? How do you want me? And we must always ask ourselves, 
How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus speak? Because when we ask ourselves how Jesus would speak, we can relate to that easier because we see him in, in the Bible. We, we, see, we read his words in Scripture. But we must always remember when we're asking God for direction, Jesus speaks, God speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks. It doesn't matter if it comes to us through our prayer life, through our reading, through our meditation, it's God speaking. Jesus is at the forefront. He is the Word. He is the Word. In fact, there in verse, in verse 3 it says, He upholds the universe by the, by the Word of His power. He upholds the universe. This massive, massive universe. We're just one little tiny spot in the Milky Way. We're on the, on the outermost rings of the Milky Way. Our solar system sits out there on one of the outermost rim, rings of the Milky Way galaxy. And there are billions and billions of galaxies in the universe. We look up from outside right now, you can't because of the haze and all those fires and stuff. But on a clear night, you look up and you see the starry sky. And you see the thousands and thousands of stars that our eyes can take in. And we know that there are millions and millions more stars out there. There are millions and millions more stars out there in the galaxy that we can't even see. You know who sees those things? God gets to enjoy its creation. We have the Hubble telescope that only sees so far. And we get these reports back of these nebulas and all these beautiful things out there. And those are great and wonderful that we get to experience them. But ultimately, ultimately, it is God who gets to enjoy his creation. And it says here that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, by his very word, the universe is held together. How powerful is that? How awesome is that? That by the very words of Jesus, the universe is held together, kept from flying apart. We know the universe is expanding, right? Science tells us that. It's expanding, but it's held together by the word of God, by the very words of Jesus. Jesus is so great. John 1 to reminds us of Jesus being called the word. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 1. John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son of from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is awesome. He is great. He's magnificent. There is no one more wonderful than Him. When we sing songs in church on Sunday mornings, we don't sing songs just to like that person driving down the road saying, Sweet home Alabama, 
Where the skies are so Those are fun songs to sing. You sing around the campfire. You sing as a family. Elvis singing about his blue suede shoes. We sing happy birthday. Fun songs to sing. But when we come here on Sunday mornings, or when you're listening to Caleb, or you're listening to the message, or you're listening to some worship song or some praise song, hopefully your heart is drawn into a, a time of worship where you are lifting up Jesus' name. It's not just a fun song to sing. Where you come and you say, God, you are awesome. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. For endless days, we sing your praise. Praise the name of the Lord our God. That is why we sing. Because he alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our worship and all that we can bring. The author goes on after reminding us of how awesome Jesus is. And then he says, now think about the angels. These angelic creation of God. These magnificent creatures that do God's bidding that are servants and sometimes speaking the words of God to people. What about them? Aren't they great? <laughs> Look what the author says. He says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and to the end today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. To which of the angels did he ever say that? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness. It is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... The Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Come, sit at my right hand, and make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You hear what the author is saying about the angels? Are they're great? They're good. They have a purpose. They're part of God's plan. Just as you and I have our are part of God's plan, we have a purpose as well, helping God's plan to move forward. But they and we are not greater than Jesus. They and we, and our plan and our part in it is not greater than Jesus. He is the ultimate. He is the penultimate. He is the most high. And we lift him up. They are his mouthpieces. They are just his servants. The angels, as, as beautiful as they may be, their beauty is nothing compared to the radiance of God. And Jesus is the radiance of God. 
As beautiful as we look at these angels, go, oh, the form, the glow, all these things we picture in our minds. I've never seen an angel, but I picture them in my mind from drawings and stuff that have gone on in the past. They're beautiful, but they're nothing compared to Jesus. Think about what the author just said about Jesus compared to the angels. He has a higher status than the angels. There in verse 5. He has a higher status. He is the firstborn of creation. They are created. He is the one who, who did the creating. They were the created ones. Verse 7, it says, angels are there to do his bidding. Because verse 8, Jesus holds a scepter to the kingdom. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. Verse 9, he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. He is exalted by the Father. Verse 10, he was the one involved in the creation. Literally, he spoke the words of creation. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And, the good, the, and John goes on, and nothing was made without him because he spoke the words into existence. Verse 11 and 12 says he is, Jesus is everlasting. He is never changing. He is eternal, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He was before time began and he will be there long after time is finished. He is the eternal one. All of us have a beginning point. January 1st, January 9th, sorry, January 9th. Yeah, that's what I put down on some of the websites. January 9th, 1969, some such time in the afternoon, I popped out. And my life began, well, nine months earlier. When my life had a beginning point. Your life has had a beginning point. Our life on this earth will have an ending point. But our spirits will continue on. Jesus never had a beginning and will never have an end. He always was and always will be. Revelation 1 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. That is our Jesus. That is our God. Our Alpha and Omega. So if he is there, if he's greater than the angels, he's greater than the prophets, he's greater than the signs, he's greater than the miracles, he's greater than us and our purposes, you think that we ought to listen to him? He's called the Word. So when Jesus speaks, he's like E.F. Hutton, right? When E.F. Hutton speaks, when people listen to the old commercial. When Jesus speaks, we need to listen and take in what he's saying more than you did when you were in college and you're taking notes or in school and you're taking notes on your professor or your teacher and then you forget it after the test. When Jesus speaks, we need to listen. One of the greatest, greatest sermons out there is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So as Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, those are instructions for you and I. He's standing up there proclaiming the word of God to all those listening and to you and I as well. So read along with me. 
on the screen behind me. He tells us in this sermon his expectations for us, how to live. The first few verses, the Beatitudes, it tells us the character that he expects in the true believer. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. He tells us about the character he expects in us. If we name ourselves as a true follower of Jesus and a believer, not just somebody who comes to church, but you would say, I am a follower of Jesus. I've given my life over to him. I'm serving him. These are the this is the character he expects in us. It may not come right away, but it slowly develops over time. Then he goes on, he says, and here we give you the example of righteousness to our generation. You are to be salt and light. You are to be salt and light to our, to our generation around you. Let your light so shine before men they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorify yourself. We do things to glorify God because he's greater. He's a fulfillment of the law. See, perfection is required to get into heaven, to get entrance into heaven, to get past those gates. When God meets you at the gates, he says, why should I let you into my heaven? If your answer is, well, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be a good broad, never killed anybody. I didn't cheat on my taxes. Well, maybe that was the one time. But I gave, I went back and I fixed it. I didn't cheat on any tests, usually. Um, I, I, when I beat up my brother, I went back and apologized. I was a good person. If those are what you say, you're out of luck. Because God requires perfection from his creation, from the beginning to the end of life on this earth. And none of us have met that except Jesus. Jesus from the beginning of his birth till his death on the cross fulfilled all the law. All the law, all 600 and some laws in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled. That's why he says he was a fulfillment of the law. He did for us what we could not do. Next it says he came to change our hearts, not just our actions. Several times he said, you've heard it said in the Old Testament. You've heard it said from your, the Pharisees. You've heard it said from the priests. But I'm going to tell you, this is what God meant when he gave that rule. He's not just about a lifestyle action change. It's easy to change the way you act. He's about a heart change. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And he says, don't be like the Pharisees. Flee hypocrisy. He calls them out. Don't be like the Pharisees. Flee the hypocrisy. If you name the name of Christ, live the name of Christ. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, live like it. Live the same way on Sunday morning as you're going to live on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, Saturday morning. There should be no difference when you you talk with your friends and your neighbors and those who don't know Jesus. There should be no difference between that and the way you talk with your pastor. If you're not going to tell me a certain joke, don't tell a joke with them. If you're not going to laugh at that joke in front of me, don't laugh at that joke with them. If you're not going to say certain things or speak certain language in front of me, 
Don't speak that brother's book. Don't be a hypocrite. And I have to use myself as an example because many times it's, oh, I can't say that around the pastor. What's he going to think of me? I struggle just as much as everybody else. Next he says, show your dependence on God in the Lord's Prayer. Show your dependence on God. Let him come alongside for your daily needs. Seek first the kingdom of God. The flowers of the field, God cares for them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that we need will be provided for us. Again, then from chapter 7, flee hypocrisy again. Judge not, lest you be not judged. Remove the plank from your own eye before you move that tweet from somebody else's. Right? Make sure that your words and your actions and deeds line up. Follow the golden rule. Do unto others as you want them to do to you. Love them. Love others. Love God. Love others. And he says, coming to God is not based on our abilities. We talked about that a minute ago. Coming to God, you got the narrow gate. Fewer are there that find it. Getting through that narrow gate is hard. Unless you're not relying on your own abilities to get you through the gate. If I'm relying on myself and my knowledge and my, my goodness to get me through that narrow gate to heaven, I'm sunk. I'm never going to find it. I'm never going to squeeze through it. I definitely, after, after quarantine, I'm definitely not going to squeeze through the narrow gate. Now listen to what Jesus says. Listen to the words of Jesus. Be wise, find God. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, it will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Our God Bible study, we just went through that. We, just, we looked at that recently. We, that passage right there. People understood that to mean when you build your house, you place on a strong foundation up on top of the ridge, not down in the gully, not where the, the flash floods come, not on the sand, which is easy to dig in, not on the edge of the stream where the ground is moist, the ground is easy, because soon those roaring torrents of water are going to come through there and it's going to totally tear down your house. And you will not stand. It is not grounded on the rock of God. On the rock of Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is awesome. What does this mean for us? How does understanding the awesomeness and the greatness of God transform us on a daily basis? See, because once we understand just how great Jesus is, it affects the way we live every single day. One of the reasons the Catholic Church was so upset with Martin Luther, because he came in and he said, you've got to stop preaching the gospel of doubt. You've got to stop telling people that they may not get to heaven unless they do certain things. 
And the Catholic Church said, but you've got to. How else? People doubt me if they, they don't have guilt. How else are they going to know what's going to make them live correctly? And Martin Luther said, their love and their adoration for Jesus will drive them, will push them to live even better. Guilt and doubt only get you so far. It changes your outward actions for a short time. When you begin to fall in love with Jesus, you fall in love with his word. You fall in love with how great, how awesome he is. That changes you from the inside out. And those, out, those outward actions become second nature because your heart is being changed. Because your heart is being transformed. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's affecting everything about you. And the actions come second. Jesus is greater. When you begin to understand just how awesome he is, following him becomes no big deal. Following him becomes so easy. Having a quiet time, having your daily devotions becomes easy. Because I want to know him. I want to know how awesome and great he is. My understanding of him is so limited. That character qualities there, the Beatitudes, become second nature. They're slowly developing in my life, and I don't even have to hardly work on it. Because God is developing them within me. The closer I get to him, the easier it becomes. Yes, I become more aware of my sinfulness. I become more aware of my failings. But I also become more aware of how awesome God is. And it drives me to my knees to say, God, let me become more like you. I want to become that Christian. I want to become that little Christ. I want to become that imprint of you. So when people see me, they don't see David. They see Jesus. This morning, as Karis comes to lead us in a final song, have you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute. And as she plays, why don't you ask God this thing? Say, God, what in my life does not reflect you? What in my life does not mimic you? That simple thing. Ask him to reveal it to you. Ask him to change you. To make you more like him. God, as we've been learning about how great you are. Father God, there are areas in my life I know that are not in line with your will, your attitudes I have, and things I've said, 
probably say this afternoon. Better not please do. It kind of makes you cringe when I say or do certain things or have an attitude that's out of line with the character qualities you expect out of your, of your children. I pray this morning, God, that you would use this passage as we're reminded once again of just how great you are, how awesome you are, that you'd use this as a reminder how far we still need to go. You would remind us, Father God, to submit all of your lives to you. To commit those fears where we continually fail. We ask you, Father, today to come in, to clean us up, to make us more like you, to be that imprint of Jesus in this world. Understand and sing one final song this morning. Be thou my vision. This is one of our favorite songs. As we sing, we say, God, let you be my vision for the world. You be my vision. You come in and change the way I think, the way I view the world, and let all that I see be about you. You become the first thing I see in the morning, the last thing I see at night. You be my vision. As we sing together.
exit. Man, cares. I trust and pray that this week, as you go out, all the other things in this world that capture our attention, that capture our mind, will be dimmed in light of the radiance, the glory of God. All the struggles we face will be dimmed in light of the radiance and glory of God. My personal failings will become dimmed. And your personal failings, not just mine. Our personal failings will be dimmed in light of the radiance and glory of God. Because he is greater than all that we face. I hope that you go out courage against that today. Don't forget our picnic in two weeks. Not today. Not next week. <laughs> two weeks. Monday. We'll probably meet from 11 till about 2 or 3. We'll come together, have your food, bring whatever you want. We'll share all kinds of goodies. Bring whatever meats you want for your family. And bring enough for you, your family, plus one more. One more not one more family, one more person. We'll have plenty of food here. We'll have some games going on. We'll have some singing. We'll have some good times together. It's always a lot of fun. So if you're off on that Labor Day, plan to be up here that day. From 11 to about 2 or 3, whenever it dies down, we'll close everything down. But it's going to be, a, we have always have a great time. So it's going to be time of fellowship. So plan on that two weeks from tomorrow. Okay. Um, hope you make plans also for the Bible studies that are coming up. It's going to be great. So be in prayer for Regina and Honey says they travel today. Uh, they'll be flying, flapping their little arms. It gets tired uh, after a while, flapping their little arms. Uh, so pray for them. They'll have the strength to, uh, to as they travel. So all right. let's stand and be dismissed in prayer today. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. I appreciate you. You love you. Let me know if there's anything that you need. Mike, would you close us in prayer today? Thanks, Heavenly Father. We just thank you for this opportunity to gather together today and worship you and praise you, Lord.